0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together uh, this evening as your people in the name of your Son. And so we pray that this word would be our rule, your spirit, our teacher, and your glory, our greatest desire. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Pressure to conform. Pressure to conform. I have to confess to you all this evening uh, a deeply distressing issue that I've been succumbing to, uh, struggling with for some time now. Uh, Slowly but surely, since I arrived in the beautiful land of Malaysia, my identity, my true identity as a British man has been waning. It started in very uh, small ways after a year or so of living in Malaysia. Uh, I found when something irritated me or something just caught me unawares, uh, rather than being a typical British guy and saying, oh my goodness me, or oh my giddy aunt, instead now, if someone catches me unawares, I go, I don't even know what that word means, but I just say it instinctively now. My wife, Melissa, has documented the very worst instances of my Malaysianization, as it were, on her Facebook wall, the ways in which her British husband had become Malaysianized. Let me just read a few for you. Here's the first one. You know that your British husband is fully Malaysianized when he sends you a text message saying that the traffic summons has to be paid at the police station, spelt P-O-L-I-S. Maybe the fact that I got a traffic summons is a sign of being Malaysianized as well, but my spelling has been corrupted. Uh, I don't use complete sentences anymore either, so here's another one that she posted up. Uh, I had no idea how Malaysianized Tim had become until he told me, Honey, can you just on this one and off that one? Now, I mean no offense to my fellow Malaysians uh, who use this wonderful form of English every day. I think it's really efficient. Uh, You don't have to say so much. And you actually spell words the way that they sound, like police, P-O-L-I-S. I think it's great. But for a a British man like me who grew up uh, in the ways of English grammar, I feel like a traitor now, uh, speaking (laughs) and even writing this way. My allegiance to my true British heritage has waned. I have now adopted the Manglish tongue. Well, the pressure to conform to our surrounding culture, that is the big issue at the heart of Daniel, uh, this book in the Old Testament that we're starting in this evening. Uh, my manglish tongue, it's not a, a big thing, a serious issue at all, it's actually quite helpful for me here. But for us as Christians, as God's people, living in a culture and in a city that for the most part denies Jesus as king... Well, the pressure for us to conform to the ways of our world and the thinking of our world and the desires of our world Mm. against Christ, that pressure is very great indeed. And so the world that Daniel knew is not that far removed from our own. We start in Daniel 1 by seeing God's people taken captive by a godless culture. It's the first thing we're told in verse 1, God's people taken captive. Come with me. To chapter one, verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So we start on a really low note for God's people, Israel. They were God's people. They were his people whom he had chosen and redeemed out of all of the nations that they might be his own precious people. He had given them his law by which they might know him and love him as their true God and be blessed by him in the rest he would provide in the land that he would give to them. And so they would know the blessing of God as their God as it's meant to be. But as Daniel begins, we see so many of those great blessings undone. Jerusalem, uh, the great city of God's king in in the heart of Israel is besieged. And we know in 589 BC it did fall to the king of Babylon, God's own city in the midst of the land he had given to his people, this stronghold is torn down. And yet this great tragedy shouldn't have been a surprise to his people, see as we read on in verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. The fall of the city Jerusalem, the uh, the defeat of their king, the captivity of Israel—it's all we're told. Actually, the doing of God Himself. The hammer of His judgment has finally fallen on His stubborn, sinful people. For years, after years, centuries—even God had sent them prophet after prophet, warning His people who were constantly going astray, "Come back to Me." As your God, as your true Redeemer, trust in me, fear me, obey my law. But they refused. They trusted in their adulterous alliances with other nations. And so now, in Daniel's day, the day of God's judgment upon his people has come. Uh, The city of their king has become a ruin. The, The temple that they trusted in for security in Jerusalem is ransacked by a pagan foreign ruler. Nebuchadnezzar strips it of all its glory and his first action, having defeated God's people and put them in chains, well, his first action gives us a hint of the kind of world that Israel will now face in exile. So continuing in verse 2, and he brought them, that is the temple vessels, he brought them to the land of Shina, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Nebuchadnezzar, he takes the instruments of worship that Israel had used to honor and worship God in the temple. He takes those precious vessels and he places them in the house of his God, which we're told is found in the land of Shinar. And if we know our Old Testament well, that should sound familiar. Because we're told all the way back in Genesis 11, the land of Shinar, that is where all humanity gathered together to make a name for itself over and against God in building the Tower of Babel. And that idolatrous ideal to make a name for ourselves, to glorify ourselves away from our Creator and live life as we see fit, well, that idolatrous ideal dominates the world of Babylon that God's people are now being dragged into. So Nebuchadnezzar, this king, he doesn't waste any time seeking to conform Israel according to his own desires and seeking to get them to swear allegiance to him. That brings us to verse 3 in Daniel's indoctrination. Then the king commanded Aspenez, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans." Uh, See, this is how Nebuchadnezzar planned to make his new Israelite subjects and slaves, how to make them useful. He was going to find the best and the brightest amongst them, bring them into his court, and immerse them in Babylonian culture, put them through this intensive indoctrination program so that they would think like a Babylonian and so live like a Babylonian. And the idea being that once they'd been completely transformed, so they would be willing and able servants of the king. They would bring their own wisdom, their own skills to his table in his own desires for conquest. So what does the program involve? We're told from verse five onwards, this indoctrination program, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So first measure, we have a new diet. Uh, The candidates were to eat of the king's food from his own table. Uh, Then we see a new education. For three long years, these guys were to learn the Babylonian language and customs that they were totally unfamiliar to pretty much at this point. And before we see the final measure, well, we meet some of the candidates themselves in verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Of the tribe of Judah. So clearly, a large group of high flyers have been drafted for Nebuchadnezzar's program, but from this point on, the book of Daniel follows the circumstances of only four men Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But that wasn't how Nebuchadnezzar would refer to them. That brings us to the final measure that they are put under new Babylonian names. Verse 7. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now that might not seem very significant to us today, a a new name. It's a bit of a change, okay, but actually in Daniel's day it was hugely significant. It implied a transfer in ownership of an individual. So as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned in the giving of a new name as well for Daniel, Daniel now belonged entirely to him. And so he considered himself Daniel's lord, Daniel's true master. But we have a saying back in the UK, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. And in Daniel's case, you could take the man out of Israel, but you couldn't take the Israelite out of the man. In his heart, he still loved and feared Yahweh, his true Lord and God. And he knew that to maintain that right allegiance to his true Lord and God, he could not conform to every charge that this foreign pagan king was seeking to enforce on him. And so we have Daniel's resolution. He resolves to fear God. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Or with the wine that he drank. Da- Daniel refuses to eat of the king's food and to drink of his wine. Again, that seems a bit strange. I mean, Out of all the three measures, uh, a new name, three years of new education, and then the best food in the land available from the king's table, you'd think the, the food would be the most popular one. And yet Daniel refuses. Why might that be? The big issue is that it comes from the king's It is the king's own food, part of his portion. Now if we share food with someone today, it doesn't automatically imply that we have a really close intimate bond with that individual. So I I had lunch with my wife yesterday, it was a really nice lunch. Uh, and yet then I, share, I could share food with someone, uh, uh, another group of friends who are ladies today in church. Uh, and by having lunch with my wife yesterday and having lunch with some other women today, I, I haven't given off any weird signals. I haven't broken any major social conventions, have I? And yet in Daniel's day, to share someone's food, especially the food of a king, to eat his food well, that meant a lot more than just sharing the food of a king. Yes, sir. It implied total fidelity. Mm. It, it was a strong way of saying, king, I'm yours. Mm. From this point on, I am yours. Mm. You are my king, I am your subject, and where you point, I will go. Mm. And knowing that, well, Daniel considered eating the food of this king reprehensible because he knew it would mean betraying God as his true Lord and King. And so Daniel resolves to resist in verse 8. Uh, Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And as he does that, God silently works, because this is no small thing. Daniel is a slave, and he's refusing the food of the king. And so God graciously gives Daniel the ear Of his immediate supervisor, this eunuch. Verse 9 God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. But even though Daniel has this guy's ear, he's still not very keen to comply with Daniel's request. See in verse 10. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, "I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king?" See, Daniel is this guy's personal responsibility, and the king's food, tainted as it might be in Daniel's eyes, it was the best food available. If Daniel appeared later to the king, that much leaner and weedier than all the other slaves with him, well, then the eunuch would be in serious trouble. He could well lose his head. And so he tells Daniel, no, be a good slave. Eat the really good food and drink the really nice wine that you're being given, thank you. Now, I wonder, what would we have done if we had been in Daniel's shoes in that situation? We've we've resolved to honor God, when we're facing an opportunity to otherwise compromise, and we know in our hearts what is right, but now we start to face some pushback. Now we start to face some resistance. I wondered, would, would he start rationalising and rethinking? Should I? Should I really be faithful to God in this moment? We start backpedalling. Would we start saying something along the lines of, Oh, well, you know, God, I tried, but now things are getting a bit difficult. And, you know, I've, I've got to eat something, or, or, the, or this guy might get in trouble. And it's clearly the, the safe thing to do, and therefore it's got to be the wise thing, right? I, I know it means betraying you, but... And Daniel doesn't blink for a minute. He was wise. He knew to expect resistance. And his heart was still very much set on fearing the Lord. And so, what Daniel does, he doesn't capitulate, he doesn't betray God, he steps out in faith incredible faith. See in verse 12 says to the eunuch, Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Hmm. Daniel really puts himself and his friends on the line here. He he tells his supervisor, look, you switch the king's food for nothing but vegetables and water. We'll eat that for ten days. And then you just look at us after ten days. And if you're not satisfied, you can do with us as you please. Doesn't mean that after 10 days, Daniel's going to change his mind, going to eat the king's food if, if he fails the test. No, he's resolute. But he tells his supervisor, you can do what you want with us. Kill us if you want. After 10 days, just wait and see. Daniel had absolutely no assurance at this point that things wouldn't end up that way. God didn't whisper into his ear saying, hey, Daniel, say this and don't worry, I'll pull you through. No, Daniel just had to trust that if he honored the Lord and feared him above all, or so the Lord would preserve his servant. And so that's what happens. Ten days passes, nothing but vegetables and water. And when the test is over, well, we do see Daniel's wonderful deliverance. Daniel's deliverance, verse 15. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. God did it. He faithfully preserved Daniel and his friends despite the, the paltry food they were eating compared to all the others. No harm came to him. Now what about us? Does that mean for us as God's people today that if we, if we step out, of faith, out in faith, if we dare to be a Daniel, do we have the absolute guarantee that God will keep us fit and healthy in our bodies here and now, no matter what? Now, friends, we've got to remember that we as God's people live in a very different time to Daniel. He was an Israelite exile. Subjugated under a foreign pagan king, he was a slave being compelled to violate his covenant with Yahweh as God. So, this, these verses, they're not a, a solid cast iron guarantee to us that if we eat like Daniel ate, God will make us healthy in our body no matter what we face. No, the lesson here is to see God's utter faithfulness to those who would fear him, that he will ultimately deliver all who remain faithful to him in his son and for us in christ we rejoice that even in death that is true friends we may lose our lives in order to remain faithful to christ as lord to remain faithful to to his gospel many are doing that every day And yet in him and in him alone, we still have the promise of life, even in the face of death, of in Christ's life after the grave. You see how God preserves his servant, the most powerful king in Daniel's world. The chief of the greatest superpower of his day, this Nebuchadnezzar with all his might and his power, sought to conform Daniel and his friends according to his own desires, but as Daniel fears God and not man, even when it hurts, or so God preserves him in a way that totally undermines Nebuchadnezzar's control, shows up this king for the little control he really has. He doesn't even know what's happened. He doesn't know that Daniel and his friends have refused to eat his food, refused to swear total fidelity to him. All Nebuchadnezzar can see now is four strong, healthy men. They look so much better than all the rest. And not only do they look better, they sound better as well. See in verse 20? And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. See, God, in his providence, got Daniel exactly where he wanted him to be, in the king's own court, uh, advising him with greater wisdom than any other. And the passage ends, verse 21, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. God sustains his servant who fears him so that he outlives this tyrant king to witness the rise of another king. This king Cyrus, the Persian king, who would conquer the Babylonians, who would free Daniel and his friends, who would return the very temple vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen back to the temple in Jerusalem. See Daniel's wisdom in, in fearing God, not man. In fearing the one who holds the will of kings in his hands, who commands the very course of history, he knew because God had promised even before they went into exile, I will save you. I will bring you back to me. I will bring you back to this land of blessing. Just repent and fear me during your time of exile. And that's exactly what Daniel did. And in that point, he, in that sense, he points us forward to the greatest servant of all, the one who feared God in every way that we, that I know in my sin I have failed to do, the one alone who never broke allegiance with his heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus. With his every breath, he feared and loved his heavenly Father and that put him on the wrong side of many earthly rulers. Many Nebuchadnezzar's in his day seeking their own glory away from God, religious leaders, political tyrants. But not once did Christ compromise when he was put under pressure. He loved God and he loved his neighbor from the heart. And so he spoke the truth in the face of opposition. He exposed the hypocrisy of supposed teachers of the law who had no intention to keep it themselves for God's glory showed up my heart and yours for what it's really like. Hopelessly turned against God, fearing anything but him, really. In need of a salvation we can never achieve in our own merits, and yet Christ himself, as he continued to fear and love God above all, achieved that salvation for us. As he went to the cross, And for a time, much like Nebuchadnezzar, our world in sin thought it had won. It had destroyed God's king in Jesus. And yet little did it know that just as in Daniel God was working, silently achieving his great purposes, giving Jesus his own son to die at the hands of sinners, only that he might rise again. That we who trust in him, guilty of sin, yes, but that we who trust in him might be cleansed of our every sin in him who died to wash us clean and then conquered death in his own body. And so as God raised his son from the dead, so he is a picture of the new life that is ours in him. So we know as God's people today in Christ, we know who will win in the end, that just like Nebuchadnezzar, our world in sin will fade away one day. Christ is on the throne And at his return, he will save, he will judge, he will make all things new. And so as we wait for that day as his people, it's our duty and our joy, like Daniel, to serve and fear and love him as Lord. And so follow him wherever he might take us, whatever the cost. That's how we show ourselves to truly be members of his kingdom, saved by his blood. It's not going to be easy. Like Daniel, we still live in a world that lives against Christ as king and seeks to conform us to its own idolatrous ways. where do we tonight need to be drawing our line in the sand like Daniel? This far and no further. One story I keep on hearing is how those particularly who work away from home, who travel on business often, there is such a temptation to compromise away. During the day, you're so busy with meetings, serving clients, making deals, and in the evening, all your fellow workers, they just want to go out and have a good time and relax. You're in a new city, and they want to check out the nightlife, so you start in a bar, but you know where it's heading. You know it's going to be humiliating if you do make a stand for Christ, and so you refuse to go to that strip club, you refuse to join them at that brothel. Maybe you'll even lose your job for it attempting to just go with the flow, to to serve Christ when it's convenient and then run the minute things get tough. Maybe we're just struggling to honor Christ with our words in day-to-day conversation because our friends, our neighbors, so much of their conversation runs on gossip, on just berating others. And we are called to speak the truth in love, to be Christ's light to a world in darkness and sin. Friends, the decisions that we make in the everyday, the mundane situations, day by day, over the course of our lives, they reveal who we truly fear, who we truly love in our hearts, in those everyday circumstances. And so one Anglican pastor, he once said it this way, if we marry the spirit of this age, we will be a widow in the next. If we marry the spirit of this age, we will be a widow in the next. When you are tempted to compromise your love for Christ in order for an easier time, remember Daniel, who stood firm and who was preserved by God to see the very restoration of his people. We have an even greater promise in Christ that whether in life or even in death, we are held secure in the arms of our Heavenly Father who gave his Son to die that we, those sinners, might live. And the only words that are going to matter, ultimately, at the end of the day, are going to be hearing him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we... Praise you and thank you for the awesome grace that you have shown us who have lived in fear and love for so many things, but you are God, our creator, our Lord. Thank you for giving your son to die, the one who never went astray, that we by his blood might be forgiven in every way, and have the promise of life with you again, both now and forevermore. I pray for us tonight, as those trusting on Christ, that we would remain faithful to Him as Lord in those moments when it will be so tempting to deny Him as Lord. So strengthen us and give us eyes of faith, your wisdom to honor Christ, even when it hurts, prizing his kingdom to come far more than comfort in this fading world. We commit ourselves into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.